Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to a very special edition of Science at Theater, uh, What's Right with Kansas, sponsored by the Friends of Berkeley Lab and co-sponsored by the Climate Works Foundation. My name is Jeff Miller. I'm head of public affairs at the lab, and I will be your moderator for the evening. Uh, before we begin tonight's program, I wanted to remind you that we'll be, we will be back on the stage on November 7th for a panel discussion on the secrets of the soil and the relevance of those secrets to climate change and energy supplies. And with that, I will now slip into my moderator's role and abandon the podium. So, uh, Berkeley Lab in Kansas, a rather strange pairing, I would think, which is probably why some of you are here. Uh, but actually, maybe not the real surprise. The biggest surprise tonight is the fact that we'll be talking about climate change without really talking about climate change, at least in the way that we in Berkeley are used to speaking about it. And why does that matter? What's important about that? Well, it turns out that in the race to reduce carbon emissions, there's more than one way to cross the finish line. There are options, ideas, and suggestions that come from all kinds of places, places like Kansas and places like Berkeley. And while we're speaking of Berkeley, I wanted to talk to you tonight about stereotypes, which we will be confronting. Not the stereotypes that people around the world have about us, but the ones that we might harbor about people in heartland states like Kansas. Now, I know we're all very broad-minded people, and I'm sure that you don't think anything about people in Kansas, no prejudice or anything. But just in case, I want to make sure that you've checked your stereotypes at the door. And if you haven't, if you have to bring them into the audience area right now, please put them under your seats. Just put them there, keep them there for the rest of the evening, because there'll really be no place for them tonight. We're also going to be talking about success. Uh, how do you change the conversation when ideologies clash? We're going to be talking about values. Oh, that terrible word, values. It's a code word for some world perspective that we don't really share. But in places like Kansas, values like thrift and conservation really mean something. They're woven tightly into the social fabric. They're not just throwaway words in a fundraising letter. We're also going to be talking about motivation, inspiration, little ideas, and giant ideas. And we're also going to be talking about that most boring of subjects, energy efficiency. I mean, how boring can that be? But actually, it can be fun. It can be engaging. It can be provocative and maybe even sexy, believe it or not. So you'll see tonight. You guys be the judge. But before we do any of this, we want to show you a video, which we shot in Kansas uh, this summer. Uh, we hope that it sets the stage for the conversation to follow. It was produced by a Berkeley Lab public affairs team, and tonight is its debut. So we hope you enjoy it, and then I'll be back on stage with our guests following the video. There's a lot of talk about global warming, and to be honest with you, I, I almost think that it can be counterproductive because the phrase global warming brings out so much passion in two different sides.
You mentioned climate change to some people and they just roll their eyes immediately. And why has it got that connotation to it? I, I think probably because they've heard so many different stories and, and so the, a skepticism grows. I'm not totally sold on the fact that uh, fossil fuels are actually causing global warming. Uh, I think that's up to debate. Uh, however, I do believe that there is actual actual climate change going on. I'm just I, I believe that actually occurs naturally, and that uh, so I'm not as concerned about the global uh, global uh, carbon footprint. So the Climate and Energy Project in Kansas um, was looking at a population that a lot of other case studies didn't look at, a more conservative state, um, one that isn't necessarily known for having really um, developed efficiency programs, but they're moving in that direction. And um, we're really thinking hard about how do you talk about these issues, about efficiency, changing our behaviors in our homes and in our communities, in a place that, um, you know, if you say you did it in Kansas, you could probably do it in other places as well. You know, a lot of times we say, oh, they did it in Portland, they did in Berkeley and it just doesn't have quite the same resonance. In Kansas, and I would argue elsewhere throughout the country, climate change became a politically polarized issue. It was seen here early and increasingly since as a liberal issue, as an environmental issue. Um, and, and people here in the heartland do not consider themselves either liberal or environmentalists. So you don't start a conversation here with, hey, the reason you got to do this is because of climate change, because it is so politically polarized that it just shuts down the conversation. One of the things that was really important to the success, I think, of the Climate and Energy Project's approach is that we really um, meet people where they are. And it's, and it's important for us to be thought of as an organization who respects their values, who is honest and open, and it really doesn't matter to us whether they believe in climate change, whether they believe it's human-induced. We're trying to find common ground. We worked very hard to honor those people's perspectives to respect their position and to learn what mattered to them that also mattered to us so that instead of reframing to make our message more palatable we were genuinely talking about what mattered to both of us we were identifying a shared interest and we were pursuing that uh, with everything that we had so what we thought about was okay how do we make genuine, long-term, durable alliances with the particular audiences who are persuasive, who own the narrative in Kansas. And the answer there uh, was fairly clear. The agricultural community, the business community, the faith community uh, were absolutely key to our success. Wise use of resources has always been a thing that farmers do, uh, and and maybe we can roll that over into how wind energy is also a wise use of resource. In this case, the wind it's going to waste otherwise. It I guess it seems wasteful to me not to use it, and I would think probably a lot of other landowners see it the same way. So why burn a fossil fuel that we know is eventually going to go away when, and at the same time let the wind energy just blow by without <laughs> being utilized. So to be able to go forward and keep that ability for as many generations of Kansans going forward through the, the economic opportunity that 
that alternative energy provides Kansas. I think that's very important. Oh, I think it is definitely a heartland value because the land itself here is very precious. Uh, in some times in the past, we have uh, abused that land. Now we're managing that land and, and taking convertible uh, products where before we threw them away. And we're managing the land and those resources to convert into many renewable energy resources. We understand the need to husband our resources and our land for future generations. I mean, a lot of us grew up on the farms here, and we've been taking care of land for a long time. And now we're happy to participate in the wind energy uh, effort that's going on. So this, this is just a continuation of what I believe are some basic core values uh, in our state. The leaders of these organizations absolutely became our messengers and the most uh, compelling example of that I think is probably Kansas Interfaith Power and Light. Interfaith Power and Light is an ecumenical organization that also serves as an advocate both inside and outside of the faith communities. It's not just about Episcopalians, they're not just Christians, it is people of all different denominations and faiths um, having that conversation across those cultural and religious boundaries um, about environmental stewardship. And they also serve as both uh, internal advocates within the faith communities and an external advocate in the, in the state as well, um, pushing for environmental stewardship and talking about it within the context of faith. Because I think there are a lot of people of faith in the state of Kansas. I think it's a big part of our culture. And so being able to have that conversation uh, in the context of God or whatever the religion that we're working in um, is an important way of getting that message across to the people of Kansas. I, I think a lot of people of faith view themselves as in, in their part of their faith traditions is taking care of the place we've been given to live. And so that this is about uh, an environmental stewardship from a faith perspective, that, that um, we are to be good stewards of the bounty that we've been given. We are a military state. We send a lot of young men and women overseas to fight. We um, have done so for generations, are doing so very much now. So there was a real emotional sense that we don't want, and in fact, people wrote in, we don't want to send our boys to be buried in the prairie. We want to have turbans on the prairie. From my time in the Marine Corps, um, I've seen people pay the ultimate human cost, as many others have known people, um, been, been very tight with people that have paid the ultimate human cost for our military presence wherever we're at in the world. Um, and to some extent or another, our motivations for being over there are tied to our concern to natural resources. Um, when, you, when you look at it in that respect, I don't know how anyone could not see energy independence for the United States as a win-win situation. I think as we look at uh, the country today that we understand that depending upon resource from abroad for energy is very, very dangerous. I think national policy and strategic policy should wean us away from dependence on energy. The grouping of such things as solar, wind, biomass is a contributing factor to that. And I think technology is on the brink of moving us forward in a dramatic way, particularly in this area of the country. And we can be the Saudi Arabia of wind. Uh, and I believe we have the full capacity to be able to be that. And that that can be a key part of what our future is about. At the root of all of this is our need to get off of foreign oil. 
We have too much dependency that makes us too insecure, that's too expensive for us in that dependency on foreign oil. And harvesting the wind in Kansas and getting it to markets where it's needed around the country is critical. to the age-old conflict for environmentalists, which is, do you choose economic progress or do you choose to preserve our environment? Our argument from the beginning was you can and should do both. Our perspective is not so much worrying about whether man causes global warming, but more a matter of why don't we just make improvements that make sense economically, because there's so many of those types of improvements that can be made. Let's address the things that are easy to address first. Um, make environmental improvements that make sense economically for the frugal-minded Kansans that we are. For us here in Kansas, um, particularly with the wind play, uh, jobs was absolutely central. Being able to say that we were going to generate thousands and thousands of jobs that would be long-term, high-earning jobs in exactly the parts of Kansas that have been losing population and losing economic alternatives for generations was absolutely critical. 2009, we found out that Siemens had chosen Reno County and Hutchinson to come to open their nacelle plant. None of us knew what a nacelle was or that it belonged on a wind turbine. So we've been happy to have them here. It's changed a lot of people's lives. A lot of people have jobs that didn't have jobs before. It's just been wonderful for our economy. We needed it. We needed the jobs. And to know that it's renewable energy, simply awesome. We're thrilled. I have people that are walking taller and feeling better about themselves in a long time. So it's helped my business. It's helped our community. So I'm proud to have them here. Affordable energy and electricity exports will help underpin Kansas's 21st century economy. We'll expand and start new wind energy projects in the state. And if we do this right, we will see the development of a renewable energy corridor throughout the state of Kansas that will provide jobs for rural Kansas and clean energy for the world. I want Kansas to not only be known as the wheat state, but also the renewable state. And we can do it. One of the things they did really effectively is use competitions between towns to get people engaged and excited. So the Take Charge Challenge is a competition among 16 cities in Kansas to see who can save the most energy and win a $100,000 energy efficiency or renewable energy grant. Um, it's a competition that features uh, leadership teams in each community working together to try to figure out what strategies they can use to get their friends and neighbors to make small changes in their homes. Whether it's change their light bulbs or weatherize their homes or get a home energy audit, all of those things help the community win. It never was about climate change for them. It was about saving money, it was about saving energy, and really about beating their neighbor. What we do is uh, we are graded on events that you put on, presentations, the people change out energy efficient bulbs and they go on the website, know how many they changed out and each city is given points. And so right now the city is, we're in uh, number one spot and so we're looking to continue that. And so this is another way for us to go and get the word out to our uh, community. It was the competition, it was winning. 
um, that, that really mattered. What we did was to refigure energy efficiency from sacrifice to win. And that's a big deal. Uh, it, it's the difference between Jimmy Carter putting on his cardigan and saying you must sacrifice and waving a banner and saying we won. You know, we did this. What we found is that these behaviors kind of snowball, if you will. And so what we were hoping to do with the Take Charge Challenge is just get people started on those actions and break down those barriers so that it becomes safer to have the conversation because you're already kind of participating in it and maybe it's not, it's not so easy to demonize um, when you're taking part in the movement. So part of it starts with, with programs like, um, like in Kansas where they get interest, there's a competition, they're actually tracking the results over time in terms of the, the light bulbs installed, the measures taken, um, the total savings from that town compared to another town. Those sort of metrics are extremely important. Um, they set the stage, I think, for um, more um, infrastructure and technology changes. It definitely takes getting people interested, engaged, and motivated to even start to think about making those larger investments, to start thinking about investing five, ten thousand dollars to improve their home, to save efficiency, to save energy. The heartland matters in this in this conversation. Um, there are people here who are doing the right thing um, for a variety of reasons. It's not, it's not about climate change for many of them, um, but they're still changing their light bulbs, they're still weatherizing their homes, they're still supporting wind energy, they're still doing the right things for the right reasons, for their reasons, and we just have to continue to respect those reasons and, and continue the conversations in the heartland. The work that we need to do on climate change is to, in fact, in real time, reduce carbon emissions. That's what actually matters, and that becomes easier and easier as we, as we have successes along the way in reducing those carbon emissions. That part of our turning away as a nation from action on climate change is the sense that we can't do it. It's too much, and it will hurt. We need to work together so that we can do it. And at that point, the conversation about climate change in our estimation changes 180 degrees. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the stars of our video, Marion Fuller and Nancy Jackson. Please. Give a warm welcome. So, welcome, you guys. Thank you. Um, I think there are probably going to be a lot of questions from the audience, so we're just going to dive right in. Um, Marion, mm -hmm. going to start with you. Uh, since it did start with you, the driving demand report. So, I know that uh, energy efficiency is sometimes called the fifth fuel, the four being oil and coal and nuclear and alternative energy. Was that fact uh, sort of one of the prompts to do the driving demand report? And you should probably explain what that is to those who don't know. Yeah, so we did a report looking at um, what actually inspired, motivated people to get involved in energy efficiency programs in the first place. Um, it certainly is the fifth fuel. It's certainly the fuel that allows other ones to not have to be used, um, so the cheapest and often easiest to get. But it turns out it's not as easy as some people think. And so we wanted to know um, what programs out there seem to be doing this effectively, making a difference, really engaging people at a broad level. 
and that was what inspired the report. Um, it's been downloaded, I think, 400,000 times now. Right. Probably there might be multiple people doing it multiple times, but still a lot of people. <laughs> and how many pages is this report again? Um, over 100. I'm sure they, I, we have some really neat, like, two-page summaries in the front. <laughs> but it includes case studies of uh, examples, like Nancy's from Kansas and other ones from all over the country, um, that point at least some of the, the kernels of what is going to work to get this to scale. So how did you first run across CEB? I'm sure there must have been a lot of choices, a lot of organizations. Um, I actually met Nancy at a conference last year where uh-huh. we were coming together to talk about how to ca- catalyze the clean energy economy. Um, and I really wanted case studies that weren't just from the coast. Um, and there actually is quite a bit going on in the heartland. There's a lot of new, interesting energy efficiency programs going on there. Um, but in particular, we wanted examples that really were using motivational techniques, really reaching out to people in new ways, using, using language that the folks they were trying to reach actually understood, um, as, opposed, as opposed to kind of the standard, um, you will save money, energy bill insert in the utility bill. You know, is that more, more likely to happen on the coast than the heartland? To use it, that? that happens all over. Okay. Utilities tend to do that if they... If they haven't learned already that doesn't work. <laughs> okay. So for those who did not read the New York Times article, which I believe was in October of 2010, was that about right? About that. <laughs> so the driving demand report, a New York Times reporter saw the report, thought the uh, CEP was an interesting story to do, and uh, then and filed this story, which appeared in the New York Times, which first got my interest, although I was aware of the report that Marion had done. So, Nancy, um, uh, we need to have the elevator speech about CEP. So, you know, you're sitting next to me on a plane and you say you're, you know, you're the, the board chair for the Climate Energy Project. So what is the Climate Energy Project and what, are its, what would be its biggest success today? The Climate Energy Project was, uh, this is not the elevator speech, but it is relevant. It's, okay. a, long, it's a long ride in the elevator. Okay, good. good. Very tall building. Uh, it was born, actually, of a, of a spirited conversation in the kitchen with my father-in-law, who many of you may know. He's the founder of the Land Institute in Kansas. And he had testified against proposed large proposed coal plants in western Kansas. But he was testifying in Topeka and Lawrence, which are two towns in eastern Kansas, nowhere near where these coal plants were. And so in the kitchen, I proposed that maybe that wasn't the best way to reach the result that he desired, and he said, what would you do? And what I said was, I would demonstrate the viability of the alternatives, that actually energy efficiency and wind energy are both better economically and better environmentally, and that they just, they're a win-win and they make a lot more sense. And that was how the Climate Energy Project started. Our biggest success to date, judging by the New York Times and this evening, uh, is certainly the Take Charge Challenge, although I have to say we are also enormously um, delighted to see our famously conservative governor, Sam Brownback, stand up and say we are going to be not just the wheat state, but the renewable state. Um, and really the Saudi Arabia wind, Saudi is Arabia that possible? Uh, well, we are the second windiest state we're in the nation. We're going to get to that, because so we're going to have a little audience participation yes. about which is the windiest state uh, before, <laughs> we, before we finish the segment. So I think now that you heard a little bit about it, the success of the program and seen the video, we need to show you a little bit of context about the state in which Nancy and her folks work. So we're going to show this. sort of hard for me to see, but I'll turn around. So we see a lot of red up there, um, California considered a blue state. So let, let's talk about what, what, is a, what do people in the audience need to know about Kansas and what might be some things that would surprise them? What the audience needs to know is that Kansans are just like you. We just own a lot more land. 
a lot more. Um, quite seriously, naturally, Kansans are also raising their children and working in their jobs and hoping for a wonderful future for everyone. And um, what I think is, is instructive and important about this slide, just like California's blue slide, is that if you look up there, you see that, of course, the, the majority voted for McCain in this instance, but 41.4% voted for Obama, right? So that's, that's a minority, but it's not a gigantic minority, and, and really critical to recognize that there's a sig significant mix there. In terms of the things that people don't know about Kansas, uh, we were famously now not so long ago for uh, the state school board electing to teach... Uh, Another theory alongside evolution. Um, no. Yes. And um, what's less known, and I think really instructive and important, is that a group of people who had been a part of the conversation with the school board over a long time continued a very focused study group and proposed science standards for the state of Kansas, which were rec recognized just recently as among the best in the nation. And so while Kansas is known for... Uh, or is believed to be in a state that does not believe in evolution, we now have fantastic science standards because a number of people wanted to make sure that that happened. So a lot of both going on there. So there's a, a network of small and medium-sized towns all over the state, and let's say the states or the, the counties are kind of configured in that way. So what is it like to be in these small towns? I mean, do what are the important institutions? Are, are churches important? Churches are very important. Schools are very yeah. important. And, of course, uh, chambers of commerce, businesses are very important. A lot of Kansas has been losing population for generations, sort of the western half of the state primarily. And so the economic future is of grave concern uh, to all communities everywhere, but certainly to those. Uh, so all of those institutions remain critical. We have a lot of Boy Scouts in Kansas. We have very robust church attendance. Um, in many ways, we do hearken back to a, a different time. So is it safe to say that most people in Kansas are going to church regularly? Is that yes. Okay. The majority of Kansans attend church just about weekly. So, Marion, when you look at this map, does anything jump out at you? Is it the demographics? So when you're considering the other states and other programs that you looked at, is there anything particularly distinctive about Kansas? I mean, I think everywhere you go, you find a great deal of diversity. If you look at L.A. County, there's a huge amount of diversity, even though you might assume L.A. is one way. Um, and that's true all across the state. I mean, we've seen programs where in one neighborhood, they've responded very different to messages and tactics that in another neighborhood went off really well. And I think we learn this again and again, even though it's like easy and nice to be able to say, oh, Kansas is like this. When you actually are on the ground and trying to talk to people and convince them of things, very different people, very, you know, there's a lot going on. And you actually have to, even within neighborhoods, even with towns, you have to be able to talk to people in a way that they understand. And through, by working through some of these institutions that already have trust in those communities, mm -hmm. um, that seems to be one of the better ways of actually getting people's attention without spending millions of marketing dollars that most of these programs just don't have. So CEP is based in Lawrence, which is one of the blue little spots there. So was that a problem for the organization when they went out to the rest of the state? Were you tainted in some fashion? It's like Berkeley in Kansas or something. Well, yes, <laughs> okay. in a word. Uh, 
you know, the, we were part of the Land Institute to begin with, uh, which is based in Salina, but is considered a liberal institution, certainly, um, within the state of Kansas, and is working on um, perennial polyculture, which is a different way of doing agriculture. So again, sometimes suspect um, to our key audiences. And so what we realized early, one of our first um, sort of notable missteps was uh, we thought, well, if we just we're, we're persuaded by information. Other people will be too. If we so we, so so we distributed the executive summary of the IPCC report. Um, and how did that go down? We, we did it personally. We actually hand delivered it to everyone in the legislature, and it went down very very poorly. It, it was. Did they even take it? Did they? They, they took it, it and they said, "Who are you? And who gave you the money to do this? And what is this?" And uh, yeah, it was it was a bad um, idea, and so and so we. We learned our lesson and and thought hard about the fact that, in fact, clearly we were not the most credible messenger for a number of these communities. So we began to think hard about who was and realized that there were all kinds of alliances that we were very well positioned to build. Um, and that's what the work has been about for the last four and a half years. Now, I, I note that transportation is really not one of your platforms. So you want to talk about how... Well, is there any mass transit in Kansas? Yes, there's some, okay. but not not a great deal. As I mentioned, we own a lot of land out there. Um, it's we have predominantly rural uh, communities and very dispersed populations, with the exception of a couple of, of urban centers in Wichita, down toward the middle there, and then Kansas City. Um, Every place else is, is quite notably smaller, and so the opportunities to reduce vehicle miles traveled are quite limited. Um, really, we saw, in terms of reducing emissions, we saw the real opportunity in the electric sector because we're so heavily dependent on coal. And so the opportunity to dampen demand through increased energy efficiency and at the same time, as old, and a lot of our coal plants are very old, as old plants get ready to retire, if we have wind energy up and ready to replace that, then we can really change that mix and reduce our emissions. So is uh, changing the automobile uh, mile per gallon rate, is that a big issue in Kansas? Do people say, oh, we don't want, it, we don't want more energy efficient vehicles? Or, I mean, is, that, is that a big issue for them? Or, yeah? No, I mean, I think as elsewhere in the nation, when gas prices were high, there was a real move toward smaller vehicles. Um, there, there's a limitation there because particularly for farm economies, there's a need for traction and there's a need for big trucks. Um, okay. so I, there's not a resistance to it. Okay. What the map doesn't show, you mentioned, though, you alluded to the western part of the state, sort of the rural depopulation. So can you describe what's going on there? And I think when uh, I remember talking to uh, one of the, the farmers who mentioned that uh, it's possible if you have a wind turbine on your, on your farm, uh, you, you can actually earn as much as $30,000 per turbine per year, which doesn't sound like a huge amount, but when you think about the farm economy, a guaranteed return of $30,000 times however many you can get on your land is quite a bit. So this has been a huge boon to that part of the country? It has. And so, you know, in a place that is depopulating and where where job choices are scarce um, and where farm economies are always really right on the edge, you know, have been for, for at least a generation, if not two, the opportunity to have this, this sort of additional crop, this added income for farms is... is 
it is uh, saving grace for a lot of these for a lot of these uh, farmers and ranchers. But in addition to that, those jobs, the, the the technician jobs for wind turbines, are some of the highest earning in a lot of these communities. In addition to the kind of nacelle factory, you know, the, the manufacturing that we're seeing popping up across the state, which again has higher than average wages um, and, and a lot more jobs in small communities than those communities are used to seeing. So how many people are employed in the wind industry right now in Kansas, do you know? Well over a thousand people, yeah. um, and that's as many more thousands have lost their jobs in that same period of time. So wind has been adding jobs at exactly the time when other economies have been flailing. Okay, well, I said in my introduction that we weren't going to specifically talk about climate change, but that was actually a lie because now I'm going to bring it up. Uh, so climate change skepticism in Kansas, just two kind of go together. And and so what, what do you think is the source of that? And uh, human-induced climate change, because there was a big distinction made between human-induced and we think that the weather is changing. So what, but what is the source for the skepticism, do you think? Clearly... Climate change has become a political marker on both sides of the political equation. And so I wouldn't for a moment dismiss that. But by the same token, I'm not sure that we know um, what what drives skepticism. Uh, and, I'm, and I guess I would submit that I'm not sure I'm ter- terribly concerned by that. I think that the atmosphere doesn't really much care what we believe. The atmosphere cares what we emit. And so... Our principle from the beginning was let's reduce emissions with things that we can agree on and save the conversation about belief for, you know, as we continue down that road together. So, so Marion, okay, when, when you look at Kansas, how is important is it that a state like Kansas sort of become a, a residential energy efficiency model? Well, I mean, Kansas uses a lot of coal, um, and so in that sense, it matters more what homeowners in Kansas do than what homeowners in Berkeley do, by a long shot, in terms of emissions. No. Really? More than homeowners in Berkeley? Yes. Did you hear that? Homeowners in Berkeley? The, the people in Kansas? Are <laughs> they more matter more. Um, <laughs> but beyond that, um, it, it, it's, to me, in this question of whether or not folks believe in climate change is really important. Um, I get really worried when we think it's enough that people um, are... Uh, that people are motivated just by saving money. Um, and then some people say, well, you have to get to climate change if you want to solve the real problem. It can't just be about saving money, right? That's often the argument. We can't just stop there. Um, I do get really nervous when we stop at, you're going to save money, that's all we're selling you. Um, but what I find promising about what you guys are doing in Kansas and by what some of the folks here are saying is that there's actually um, deeper fundamental values that people are tapping into to motivate action beyond just the dollars and cents. Right, so the average electri- utility bill in the country is like 150 bucks, and you you know tell someone, oh, you're going to save a third of that. It's like 50 bucks a month, and a lot of people are not going to you know stay home to get the insulation contractor into their house to do the work to you know pay a couple thousand dollars to have uh, insulation and air sealing so that they can stop you know wasting energy every day. Um, but if it's a part of a larger conversation that you know we believe in conservation, we be, believe in being doing a practical right thing by our resources and by our land, that's what I that's what I like need to have hope about the whole country actually getting on board and making change. They don't have to believe that people are causing climate change, I don't think, but they have to have some moral basis for action beyond just saving money. And do you think that exists across the country in some I fashion? I think we see it in this video. I, I definitely think, I think the, the seeds are there. Mm-hmm. Um, connecting those seeds to actions in our communities is what Nancy and others are trying to do. 
um, getting that conversation started, getting this to be a normal, positive thing that communities just, you know, it's something we think about. Well, I was struck when we were there about this relationship between the word conservative and conservation that came up a lot, and I didn't, you know, that's not really the context in which I'm used to hearing it. So is there something particular about those two words in Kansas that that means something significant to folks? Well, I mean, I think we've, we've been trying to say, let's put the conserve back into, con- into conservative. Um, by definition, what conservatives do is conserve, whether that's money, whether that's options, whether that's, um, you know, environmental resources. And so I do think that there is a, a deep, you heard it from several, several people in the video who were not environmentalists and would, would never define themselves that way. Nevertheless, they all are operating, whether from a spiritual sense of stewardship or just the Boy Scout principle of let's leave this place as good as we found it, um, that there really is that value uh, that, that is deep. In, and you do in, see people out of the country connected to land in a different way than people in cities, for example, right. might be connected to it. Um, and I think that can be motivating. I mean, I've been on in conversations with folks in the Midwest and also just airplane rides you know, across the country, and I've actually heard people talk about how important it is that their kids get outside and actually experience the land. Um, and that can easily be connected to a whole series of actions and choices that folks make. So you're seeing that across in, in lots of states where, I see the, where the people the, are closer to the land doing that. I see the potential for that to be there. I see that the values are there. You don't have to like, create the values in people. Um, but you do have to connect them to a set of actions that they might not currently think about or know about. Or and I wonder if I could amplify on that a little bit. Because I think there is a, often a sense that if we if we start with belief and then then that will lead to action mm-hmm. but we know that that's not always true because certainly many many people know perfectly well that smoking is bad for them but continue to smoke they know that they shouldn't be um, that they should be exercising they should be watching their diet and yet they're obese and so Belief doesn't always lead to action, and what we're finding is that actually the inverse can be true, that if what you do is to work with the community on the actions they can take, that as Eileen said on the video, taking those actions together can actually move the entire community to a place where they can have a different conversation about what they know. Uh, And so we've actually tried to invert that and say, let's act first um, and, and continue to to have a conversation as we go. Yeah, and the research actually really supports this, right? So you see social psychology research basically saying if you can get people to take small steps, they'll start to see themselves as a person who recycles, as a person who... You work at Berkeley Lab, you're talking about social psychology research. I mean, the two don't equate. Well, it turns out to solve some of the problems that are important, you also need to understand human beings. And so... Really? Yes. Yes, and so we do look at things like that because it matters (laughs) in actually the deployment of these technologies that we want to see in the field. Um, and so things, things like this, like little, little steps. And maybe it takes a competition, you know, competing against a rival town to get people to try something once. And then it becomes normal. And that's another huge theme that you okay. see in these programs. You have to use social norms. People have to think that this is the normal, practical thing to do. It can't be, you know, I sometimes worry there are places that have campaigns that show energy efficiency um, programs as, like, superheroes. Like, if you participate in this program, you're a superhero. Yeah. Well, that's the message of, like, that person's abnormal, they have like special powers, it's not something the normal person can do, and that might work in places that, like. um, I'm not going to name names, okay. <laughs> there are programs that use that though, and I think that in many places people are going to say, I'm not that person, you know, I don't have time to be a superhero, and it needs to be something that's a practical, normal thing to do. 
And what we find in the research is that for things as simple that, you know, there's a lot of literature that looks at, you know, messages that you give, people will say they do it for environmental reasons, but they actually do it because they've been told that other people do it too. Over and over again, you see this. There's, a, you know, you know, legendary study where there's a sign in a hotel room and it says, you know, save water, uh, don't, you know, reuse your towels, don't put them on the floor and we'll, we'll leave them for you to reuse. And one's, one's a save water message, another one is, you know, this creates X number of pollution into the atmosphere if you, you know, various messages. Yeah. One environmental, one, you know, be a good person, another one is that the person who stayed in this room for the, you know, 90% of the people who stayed in this very room, you know, reuse their towel. And that's the one that works. That's the one that works. So also but when like, you ask people why, they will not tell you that. And that's something that's very tricky. You can't just ask people what's motivating. They don't always know. And they, it's mostly that they don't always know. I don't know if it's always that they don't want to admit it. But it's this like, you know, subconscious sort of um, uh, motivator. Is it the same principle when uh, people in a neighborhood know what their neighbors are using energy that they also... Yes, and there's been a lot of experiments with that, too. Competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to go back to the land thing for just a second. So mm-hmm. let's just say that proximity to the land is, in, is an important value that really helps. How about people in urban areas who don't have that? So what would be the comparable uh, version of that here? Well... Um, there are certainly places that have uh, an environmental ethic that already exists in many cities. Um, Berkeley certainly has that, and lots of people, I'm sure, get out to Tilden Park and places really close by. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I also think that uh, just this. Uh, I'm sure even in, in cities in Kansas, there's not a lot of large cities, but I'm sure even there, there's there's a, a fundamental value of conserving resources, mm-hmm. at least in a broad sense. So it. And I don't think you can generalize either. You know, it's not going to be one thing in each place. Um, you know, in in Chicago, you know, they're connected to the land in certain ways, even though they're in a large city. Um, but they also have, you know, a huge climate action plan that's motivating a lot of the city agencies to incent certain types of actions. So it's always like a super complex mix of things that are actually going to motivate that individual person you might, or business owner that you might be trying to approach. But peer pressure definitely helps with everyone. Yeah. That's true. It, <laughs> it does. It does for so many things. It does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, the, um, again, another thing that struck me when we were in Kansas was there was a lot of respect for science, even though we dis- disagreed with it. So I, I wonder now when I hear what you're talking about, the changes in the school science norms, mm-hmm. um, they had a respect for it, which I was a little surprised by. They made this distinction. So is, is that true? I mean, do you find were they people just being polite or did they actually, did they actually believe that? We are really polite. You are very polite, yes. So polite. Um, so, so yes, they were being polite, but but it is also true. <laughs> they were, but but it is also true that you know Kansans again, really almost everyone in Kansas is is only one generation removed from the farm if they if they are off the farm, and and crop science has you know and animal husbandry, almost every family in Kansas has directly experience the results of science in their in their lives and so I think that there's a healthy respect certainly for technology and for science as well um, as you heard one of the of the gentlemen in the video say I think that there are just a lot of, of competing messages in in sort of the, the public dialogue right now yeah. and it's difficult for non-scientists to sift through them okay we're going to move off this slide to this slide 
<laughs> we saw a lot of American flags flying from front porches in Kansas. So um, I know that Kansas consider themselves patriotic. But is there also some connection to the huge role that the military plays in the state? And I know the military, actually, in terms of energy independence, this is also one of the themes that, that we saw in the video and that other people talked about as well. No, it is. And I think, as you saw in the video, there are several forts in Kansas. Fort Riley is the home of the Big Red One that was famous in the first Gulf War. Uh, Fort Leavenworth is where a lot of international officers are trained. Uh, we have a huge economic dependence on the military in Kansas, but also really almost every family has one, if not multiple members of the family who have served and many of whom have died. And so we did get, um, in response to a blog post at one point about the military and what the military has been doing to achieve uh, better energy efficiency Mm -hmm. um, and the use of renewable resources. There were a lot of people who responded, as I said in the the video, you know, one woman in particular who said, I think it just makes a lot more sense to put turbines on our planes rather than bury our young men and women under them. And that was just a theme that we saw over and over. There really is a visceral sense that we ought not to be overseas dying um, to, to get resources that perhaps we could replace better here. So, Marion, uh, the military's interest in energy efficiency, has that played into any of your reports so far? And um, I didn't, I haven't, we haven't seen it as much in the kind of the residential market that we looked at, but mm-hmm. we do know that the military, all branches of the, of the military have been amazingly receptive to renewables and efficiency. And the good thing about the military is that one person makes a decision and it happens. So way more easy than working with like convincing people of these things. You mean like one working by at one. the lab, uh, trying to get something done at the lab, that kind of thing. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, but literally they're just very effective and, and they see the value proposition in it and they yeah. also see the casualties on the ground of getting oil and other resources to battlefields. Right. Hugely expensive, hugely dangerous in terms of the amount of number of lives lost. So for them, it's been a really easy equation. I mean, compared to any other institution that I know of mm-hmm. in the world, certainly in the United States, they have they have really gotten the bug for renewables and efficiency. Agreed. And, and having that example in front of Kansas, certainly, and I would say people across the heartland, is, is enormously persuasive. So do Kansans feel a special sense of pride in their history? I mean, they, they had a, a history of a lot of progressive and radicalism. Uh, and they have then became known for something else. But do they still, do they feel like maybe they're misunderstood by the sort of coastal elites? Does that term come up at all? I hate to speak for Kansans. Um, well, I know you're from California originally. Which I is am. You were born but, in, in uh, Aptos, right? I was. Yes, okay. um, Don't let that get around. <laughs> you take the, edit that out. Oh, sorry. Time. We'll edit um, that out. No, I am, I am a convert, though. You know, I've, I've lived in Kansas for over 15 years and, and really do love it there. And um, I, do th- I do think there is a sense that, um, I, I remember when I was starting the Climate and Energy Project, my husband and I were watching a, a segment of Bill Maher, and, and the election had just happened. George W. Bush had been elected for the second time, and Bill Maher was saying to, I think it was Susan Sarandon, what happened? And she said, I don't know, I think people in the middle of the country are stupid. And, um, <laughs> and, 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 I, and we took personal offense at that, and... Um, I think to the extent that people in the middle of the country feel misunderstood, it's, it's probably in that sense that, mm-hmm. you know, people in the middle of the country 
naturally, you know, are, are not stupid. Um, they are in a really different context and have a very different tradition and 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 a different context in which they're operating now. Um, so I don't know that I could I could say if they feel misunderstood, but I often feel they are misunderstood. So what was the biggest surprise when you from California moved to Kansas? What some things you had to get used to? I'm just trying to establish a context here so people can understand. People in Kansas speak more slowly than I do. Um, so I, I stood out that way and are less expressive with their faces. I was horrified to watch myself on the video. Um, they're, they're much more controlled and, and uh, have, have a better appearance in that way. I do think, I mean, communities are stronger. You know, we, 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 are, we have a smaller population in the state. We still have a lot of smaller towns. People really know one another. One of the things that's been the most impressive to me as, as a transplant is that in Kansas, you, it's not six degrees of separation. It's really one. I mean, really, almost anybody in the state that you want to get to and have an important conversation, you can find a way to do that, um, you know, including the governor, who is incredibly approachable and available. And so for, a, for an organization like ours, that was an incredible boon uh, that we had these working networks that we could plug into and that were very welcoming to us despite the fact that our name was the Climate and Energy Project and most of them didn't agree with our premise. So, Okay, let's take a look at the energy landscape in Kansas. So, uh, Marion, is this fairly typical of the states in the middle of the country? Yeah, and the southeast and a lot yeah. of other places. A lot of other places. Yeah. <laughs> So um, there's a heavy reliance on coal, and I'm wondering, were most Kansans, I mean, did they, are they aware that the, the coal is the primary source? Uh, they are now, uh, because it was so controversial for a good three years, um, dominated legislative sessions and so on. But when we started our work, we did a lot of public opinion research, and what we found in, in focus groups and in polling is that a lot of Kansans thought that the majority of their electricity came from the sun, from solar, and from hydro, really? which is not true. Radically different, uh, the reality. So the 2030 goals, there's still a lot of coal up there. Is that, uh, can, can you anticipate being more ambitious perhaps? Or is that just is that wildly, overly ambitious at this point? That's pretty ambitious. And when we were first showing this slide, what we were trying to show was that it was reasonable and it was achievable, that it wasn't absolutely crazy. We weren't saying shut down all of your coal plants. What we were proposing really was, as some of these aged plants get to the end of their useful life, let's retire them and replace them with native resources that can help Kansans to thrive over time. Um, it's an ambitious goal. We're doing well. We've got 7% of Kansas energy is generated by wind now, which is a dramatic difference from that first slide just a few years ago. Um, we have a long way to go on efficiency. But it's also important to think, I mean, is coal going to be an issue that folks in Kansas are really going to get that upset about? As, you know, you it's tell me, cheap. I don't know. It's, it's been cheap anyway. It's actually getting more expensive, so there's that, that's good. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's an American resource. Um, so there are certain arguments that you know aren't going to move people the way we might in Berkeley hope they would. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of places that you know for the last many years, for as long as I can remember, have depended on cheap coal to keep prices low. And that, and, and this is an important point that Marion's making because. Our, our electricity costs are remarkably low even still, yeah. and they've gone up dramatically in recent years. When we started work, retail rates were, were on the utility that I get my service from, $0.08 cents a kilowatt hour. Compared to here, where it's like 12 to 40 I think now, mm-hmm. around 40 Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it was remarkably inexpensive. Yeah. So, yes, coal was cheap over time, but in addition to that, 
we were a coal state at one time. Kansas has coal. We have a lot of oil and gas. We develop it still. So you're right. It's a state that's very friendly to that kind of resource extraction. And so, again, that was a question of how do we begin talking about this in a different way. And what we chose was, at this point in time, coal is coming from somewhere that's not Kansas. Mm -hmm. And so both for energy independence reasons, but also for just economic viability, resilience reasons, it makes more sense to make use of a local resource that has... The, the fuel itself has a cost basis of zero. Yeah, right. and in, in many you know midwestern states, some western and uh, sorry eastern and, and southeast, there's going to be a lot of coal plants retiring, mm-hmm. and building new right. ones is going to be quite expensive. Um, so there are opportunities now to even start making economic arguments that as those are phased out, due to both Clean Air Act and just that they're they're 40 plus years old, uh, there may be opportunities to say you know as we're thinking about replacing it, what are we going to replace it with? Exactly. Yeah. Well, we have been uh, receiving some questions in social media uh, for this event, so this is a little off topic, but uh, I'm going to ask it in any case. Um, so someone wanted to know how big CEP is, how, many, how big your organization is, where does your budget come from, and then would you ever take money from the Koch brothers if it was offered? At our height, the Climate and Energy Project was five people. And so we are very tiny, tiny and mighty, nimble and quick. Uh, The majority of our funding over time has come from charitable foundations, Rockefeller Brothers Energy Foundation here in San Francisco, um, and, and many others. Recently, the last couple of years, we've been very lucky to have um, U.S. Department of Energy funding through the National Renewable Energy Labs and also ERA dollars through the state of Kansas, the Efficiency Block Grant. So that was what really ran the second round of the Take Charge Challenge. Um, and as far as the as the Koch brothers, they have not called us um, to, to offer us money, and I wouldn't anticipate that occurring, um, but I will say that we have very uh, gratefully accepted sponsorships from utilities and from wind producers and from Walmart, uh, and so, you know, if the question goes to um, the purity of money, I, I would submit that it's pretty pretty hard to find clean green uh, out there, really. You know, Rockefeller Brothers is one of our big supporters. We're intensely grateful to both the family and the foundation. Uh, but that fortune was made on, on resources that were extracted. So. so do you see a similar pattern for other uh, energy yeah. organizations across the country? Yeah, it's actually a really interesting stage right now where we've had billions of stimulus dollars pouring into programs like this all over the country. Um, really interesting, you know, creative experiments going on around what works, how do you reach people, really great research to figure out how do you segment the markets, those sorts of things, creative ways of incenting folks. And we really see a huge uh, wall, uh, or cliff, <laughs> rather, um, in the next year as those funds run out and, and you know, people are scrambling to find funding. Uh, probably the most re- re- uh, reliable source of funding in the country has really been utility ratepayer funds. So those little charges that in some states, and actually many states, um, they take little bits of money off your bill and they use it to fund efficiency and in some case renewables. We spend billions of dollars every year, or not billions every year, but billions over several years in California here for um, our efficiency programs. And 
Um, we actually just are about to release a report looking at over the next 10 years, what do we expect that money to do? And it goes up gradually, but part of the problem is that it's unevenly distributed throughout the country, and it's not necessarily distributed in states with the most potential for carbon savings. Um, but that is going to be the most reliable and resilient source of funds that we see going forward, given the current political climate and the current like lack of funding this sort of work at a federal is, and often Is state there not level. a story about this funding in California at the moment? In terms of the, the, the ratepayer funds? Yes, ratepayer funds. You, would you like me to tell that story? <laughs> uh, maybe a little bit of it. Um, well, what's happened most recently is that um, the utility charge, the public goods charge that is on our utility bills, um, was not renewed by the legislature, and it expires at the end of this year. Um, in California, though, we mostly get our efficiency funds through a procurement process. That's kind of an arcane thing that no one here probably cares that much about. And so we're going to be able to continue to get most of our money through that mechanism. And we'll see what happens in the legislature next year in terms of renewing some of our very important resources for R&D and research that were part of that, that fund, okay. public goods fund. So now we're going to pause for a second for a little audience response time. Uh, you heard Nancy mention earlier that Kansas is the second windiest state. So our friends at NREL, National Renewable Energy Research Laboratory, um, have done a, uh, a measurement of the windiest states in the U.S. So we all agree that Kansas is second. But I'm going to read you uh, the list of the other four. And by your applause, you're going to tell me, you can only applaud once, please, which is the windiest state. So I'm just going to read the choices first, and then we'll go through them again. So the, the choice is for the windiest state. And I'm not sure how you actually do that. I mean, does the wind stop at the border? I don't know how they do that. Uh, Nebraska is one. North Dakota is another. Montana and Texas. So think about that for like five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, we will start with North Dakota. Applaud for North Dakota. Okay, Montana. Definitely weak for Montana. Texas. Nebraska. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that Texas actually is the windiest state, and I think Nebraska may have won here, but it was close. It was close. What's that? No, it is not, actually. It is not. Um, so, let's switch now to a series of slides that Marion has provided about, these are various advertisements from some of the other energy efficiency programs. We're going to kind of move into the behavior change topic now. How do you actually get people to change their behavior? So let's, we're just going to run through these. What can you tell us about this one? Yeah, so this is an ad from um, Colorado, uh, Boulder, Colorado, and they're really looking at a message of, uh, you know, this is a conservative value your grandpa would approve. Uh, it just makes sense. Like, don't be an idiot. Like, your grandpa knows about this um, sort of message. And they really wanted to make this seem practical. And even though it's Boulder, Colorado, which a lot of places, people probably think, oh, hippie, crazies as well, like Berkeley, uh, there's a lot of very practical down-to-earth folks there. And Really? Yes. Oh, okay. um, and so this sort of like practical thing, don't get left out. There's all these rebates, $1,000 worth of rebates, et cetera. And, you know, it ends at a certain date. That's another thing that programs has found, that there needs to be some sort of okay. deadline to actually motivate action. All right. Let's take the next one here. 
This is an example from Eagle County, which is where Vail um, and other big ski resorts are. So they're really tapping into the local culture there. Uh, they told me that a number of these actually have the picture of one of the bachelors. Um, I can't remember. It's like... I can't remember his name. I'm, I'm so That's out okay. of pop culture. But anyway, a, a guy there who was like famous from The Bachelor is now like featured in these uh, ski pass ads. Who's like well known, a local uh-huh. advocate for this. Good. So they're lo- using like a local celebrity, someone people recognize with like, oh, exciting, fun. It's winter. Like, let's go seeing. No, it's winter. You actually need to make sure your home is insulated well. Yeah. Is, is kind of the connection there. Okay. So this is an example of just a case study. What we find is that people really need to have models that they recognize. They want other people to go first. They want to see that someone that they can uh, relate to has actually done what they're thinking of doing. Um, most people, probably 85% of people or more, um, aren't the early adopters, don't want to go first, want to make sure that someone else has tried it and it's tr- tried and true. So this is a series of... Um, of success stories from Charlottesville and Charlottesville, Virginia, and it really just each one. There's more detail behind this, but they're they're mostly focusing in their advertising on families that are actually community members who went through the program, the level of savings, information about their home, um, so that people can start to get familiar with this with someone that they recognize. Okay. This is a, you know, a lot of programs actually do this, where they have a lawn sign in front of every home that they do an upgrade to. So you can start to see within a neighborhood. Let's say you do a neighborhood sweep through the community, and you start, every other house starts having these, these lawn signs, and people who don't have them start feeling weird, like, I didn't participate, what's wrong with me? Um, that's definitely a good thing to encourage in a community if you want people to participate. They want to feel like something's wrong with them if they don't participate. Um, so this is an example. You know, every home makes impact. Go to the website. Get involved now. Um, very important message. Okay. One of my favorites. Oh, it's not going. It's not going. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. So this is an ad from the Southeast. Um, the Southeast Energy Alliance put these together, and the idea is that there's an elephant in the room that no one's talking about. You're in your home, you're cold, or you're really hot, and no one just wants to mention that. And that this is something that you know, should actually be brought out into the open, is worth talking about, and clearly they use a creative visual image to get that across. Okay. Next. This is actually a program that's going to be launching in Alameda County in Oakland, and it's going through kids to get their parents to sign up for programs. Uh, this has been done for a lot of different issues. Recycling is probably the one that's most commonly known, where it was actually kids that started to nag their parents to recycle, and that's why a lot of people in, all across the U.S. started recycling. They had very um, targeted programs at schools. Um, this is a similar thing, that if you get a certain number of parents in each school to sign up, they are entered in a raffle, and the school can win. Uh, they both get money per parent that signs up, for educational purposes, and they get entered in a raffle that they can win $10,000 if they um, are the school with the most uh, parent participants in the district. We are actually starting our own program, not with $10,000 prizes, but something called Cool Your School, a pilot program, which you all be hearing more about in the uh, spring. Okay, next. This is from Connecticut. Um, they're doing something similar to Kansas, where they're trying to get cities and towns to compete against each other. Um, and similar to Kansas, they have different points for different activities that both the town can take, that the local individual business owners and homeowners can take, and they compete. And they have these uh, the scoreboard that's constantly on online. They show it in a bunch of different venues in each town, um, and they compete for prizes. And I think some of the prizes include things like you can get solar or efficiency in your municipal building. You get 
you know, there's been other programs that try to motivate people, for example, by um, if, you, if a community does a certain amount of energy savings, you actually get a park that everyone wanted in, in, the, in the kind of a central location. Things like that that are really tangible, unlike efficiency, which tends to not be tangible. It's the lack of something. Um, trying to get people to actually relate it to something physical, something that they want, and, and ideally something that the community can work together um, to work towards and actually accomplish together. Great. Okay, so now, oops, let's talk about the Take Charge Challenge in Kansas. And before we get to that, though, I'm, you, you mentioned some of the things that um, uh, obviously a big success. I mean, you mentioned some things you did wrong at the beginning. Were there other things that you did wrong? Because there might be some other folks here in the audience who are thinking about uh, taking some steps and trying to start their own environmental organization or do some bootstrap work. You know, there are other lessons here. We're going to talk about that at the end, but I'm curious at the very beginning if there were some things you absolutely would not do. I think the biggest of those really was was just not paying attention to who our audience was and what they already thought and believed, and <laughs> which is remarkable because, as I said, we did a lot of public opinion research, so we really should have known better. Um, and there were a number of missteps early on on that score. With this, with the Take Charge Challenge, I would say uh, early, too, when you're bootstrapping, we did the first round of the, of the Take Charge Challenge with $150,000. That was the total amount that we spent, including our staff time. So it was remarkably um, creative. And in doing that, then, what you want to do is make sure that you're making it as easy on the communities as possible. And one of the things that I would say we, we did differently in the second round was the first time our, our volunteers were so excited and they were just wanting to create these all these wonderful events to launch the challenge and to, to do quarterly celebrations and so on. And we realized that people really weren't willing to come out for whole new events that they'd never heard of for a program that didn't yet matter to them. And so the second round, we really got smarter. And again, it's similar to just knowing your audience. You know, we got smarter about piggybacking onto events that were already occurring and working with groups that were already established so that there was less of reinventing the wheel that was going on. So I know this second uh, Take Charge Challenge has a $100,000 prize. It does. So is there going to be a third Take Charge Challenge, and will there be money? And if there isn't money, will you get the same kind of participation as you did now? That's a good question. Again, the first round was a much tinier prize. It was a $10,000 prize, and the winning community ended up putting solar panels on their library, which was a wonderful visible marker for for the the win. This version, because it was era dollars, um, is a lot richer, and the communities are very excited about it. Um, is, could, I, could I ask Dorothy Barnett to just wave at the audience? I can't yes, see where please, she is. Yes, please, Dorothy, wave. So Dorothy Barnett is our executive director, and she ran both rounds of the Take Charge Challenge. So while I'm up here talking about it, she's the one that deserves all of the, all of the credit. Um, but we were talking this evening about, about the prize and whether it matters and how much it matters. And what I would say that we came, at the end of the day, it's winning that matters. There needs to be a marker for that, similar to the yard sign. It doesn't necessarily have to be a gigantic sum of money. I mean, the communities are thrilled, but I'm not sure any of them are competing harder than the original round of communities that were competing for a measly little $10,000 prize. So winning matters, and a marker matters. The size of the prize, not so much. So did you choose towns that were, let's say, football rivals? The first time, we did not. The first time... 
there's another thing that we could have done better. Um, the first time we we had our own we had our own reasons for choosing the towns that we did, and they were we wanted to work with every different kind of utility. We didn't want anybody to be able to say, well, sure, it works in California or Portland or New York, but it won't work here. So we wanted to work in rural communities way out west. We wanted to work in larger communities that are you know a bedroom community to Kansas City. We wanted to work with big investor-owned utilities and rural electric cooperatives and municipals. So we had our own metrics for choosing those towns. And they certainly did compete, and they, they competed very hard. But what we realized was it would be so much easier if we just chose towns that were already competitive. So if they all play against one another in sports, there's an inherent desire to win, to beat that town. And that's what we've seen this time. This time when we chose the groups of towns, we chose towns that play against one another in league sports, and it was tremendously successful. And so you, uh, this is like a screen capture, so you're showing the current standings, people see where they are, and how important is that? And Marion, is this like when you see the behavioral change, so the feed, this is a feedback that that people like to see? Yeah, they definitely need to see feedback about how they're doing. And part of that is, you know, you having folks write in how many light bulbs, all the actions that they're taking. They need to know that it's fair and that it's being measured against something and that they'll be able to tell if they win. Right. Um, Similar to the, you know, utility bills where you're compared against your neighbor or you you make a change and you actually have a bill that shows you over time your change and you can see it go down. Um, Definitely important to encouraging future actions for their their interest. Mm -hmm. And how do you make this fun? I mean, really, energy efficiency, how can that be fun? So one of the things that people said to us at the beginning when we were creating this project was they said, you know, you environmentalists, you're always moving the goalpost. Just when we do the one thing that you said to do, you're telling us that we need to do something more. It was. And so what we decided was, okay, so let's celebrate success as we go. Let's really take a moment to stop and say, great job. Here's what we did. We did it together. And now... We're going to do this together, and you, the community, have chosen what you're doing next. That was huge, cool. giving the leadership teams complete ownership over what they were doing and when they were doing it. Um, but that's how we made it fun. It was every quarter's challenge was kicked off with the big community party and then celebrated um, at the beginning of the next quarter, and another one kicked off. And some of these were incredibly inventive. Um, one in the most recent challenge was um, fight the energy hog day and there was a pig roast oh yeah and let's <laughs> let's show this this is like a this, this is one of my favorite the soviet art from the lawrence uh fire, fire department, department. I mean, right this. this is amazing it was it was great and i mean the firefighters it was interesting because a lot of people poo-pooed this and they said oh they're not going to get on board with that they don't care these guys are fierce competitors, and I mean, they are reading by windows. They are, uh, they, they, they turn their thermostats way up and swear that they got used to it and they're never going to go back down as lower as they were before. How can you help crush the competition? Yes, absolutely. So, the link between energy efficiency, renewable energy, and jobs, I mean, how did you make that leap for everyone? I mean, that you could have been just in, let's, you know, be energy efficient and you not necessarily made that connection to renewable and jobs. So was that a, a conscious thing that you did from the very beginning or something that you learned along the way? Really, our, the work that we did on wind energy preceded the Take Charge Challenge. So really, we applied a lot of the lessons that we learned in that to efficiency. And for wind, mm-hmm. jobs is, is really... a your winning point. Um, and we, we were lucky enough, we brought the American Wind Energy Association in. Dorothy arranged an economic development tour, so they addressed 
large groups of economic development professionals, chamber people, legislators across the wind belt in Kansas. And we got wonderful press response to that. Um, We had booths at the state fair talking about jobs, talking about the manufacturing sector. We had we had union guys there to talk about those those opportunities as well as um, business owners. So we recognized early with wind that clearly that was the winner and when we moved over to energy efficiency while most of the message was about you can save energy, you can save money you can make changes that help us to have a more resilient energy future um, in general in Kansas we also knew that that local economic resilience mattered and so one of the interesting features of these challenges was every single community chose very intentionally to try to spend most of their money in town with local merchants. And so there really was this sense that local insulators and local sellers of furnaces and air conditioners and so on were going to benefit from this. And they've seen that benefit. And I think now we have we have that um, anecdotal evidence, even if it's not uh, as data-driven as we would like. So is, wind, this, at all, excuse me, is it, wind at all controversial in Kansas? I mean, in some places here, Green Mountains of Vermont, places in the East Coast, you know, wind sure. turbines, I can't think of anything worse than that. Right. But in Kansas, yes, no? Some places, yes. So so we have, um, we have an area in Kansas called the Flint Hills. Most of you wouldn't necessarily recognize them as hills, but they're very pretty. And um, they are extremely scenic, and they, and they are... A, you know, a heritage area for the state, um, certainly attract tourists. And so that's a place where there are a number of ranchers who have thousands and thousands of acres and would really prefer not to have turbines. Uh, Governor Sebelius, when she was in office, set aside a no development zone for wind in the Flint Hills. Governor Brownback enlarged that. Um, however, the Flint Hills are a tiny slice of Kansas, and the, the huge western part of the state where the wind is the best is a place where turbines are welcomed. That's economic development that's very much wanted in those areas. And so we just had an announcement today of the biggest wind farm in Kansas that's about to, to begin to be built um, down in a couple of counties who have suffered a lot of depopulation over the years. Both of those two counties will receive half a million dollars a year from this wind farm, which in California sounds like very little, but let me tell you, that really builds schools and, and preserves roads and so on. It's an enormous boost to these counties' economies. So, right. so now we have our wind turbine lapel pins. <laughs> I mean, just in general, the, the jobs argument has been a huge part of the stimulus money that's gone into efficiency programs. So we're seeing a lot more jobs per dollar spent for efficiency than renewables even, and certainly more than the fossil fuel economy. Um, you know, If you think of all the labor that it takes to do some of these improvements to buildings and homes, it's a lot of human labor that actually has to be there on site and is usually a local company, especially for these residential upgrades. Well, one of the first things that I, when I read the story about your organization that struck me as clever, um, and maybe clever isn't exactly the right word, but the fact that in not talking about climate change and wanting to engage with the faith community in Kansas, you use this concept of creation care and Christian stewardship. So, I mean, it's true, true that you actually even uh, wrote green message points for sermons. Is that a true story? That's not a true story. Oh, okay. We it's not ne- a true story. No, we would never presume to write green message points. But what we did, do, and, and, and we cannot take credit because we were 
inspired by and a part of um, Interfaith Power and Light, which was started here in the Bay Area and is a national organization. And, and we started a chapter, a Kansas chapter of Interfaith Power and Light. What we did do was to provide lots of support to clergy who were wanting to provide um, messages. And what they did was not only make great use of Interfaith Power and Light's wonderful materials and support, but also um, a number of them, you saw some of the pictures, the, 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 Catholic, um, the Catholic bishop for most of, of western Kansas and part of Nebraska hosted, um, the diocese hosted a, a day for clergy from many faiths to come together and really talk about how can we, how can we talk about this message? What can we say? What have you done? What could we do? And from that then flowed a training for facilities managers um, so that sanctuaries would pursue improvements. Uh, and then from that flowed uh, cool congregations training, which again was supported by IPL nationally. But um, So we had wonderful materials to work with, but that was outreach to congregants in terms of, okay, so here at, here at the sanctuary, we, we've made these changes because we want to preserve creation and we want to encourage you to go home and do similar kinds of things. And so it's been, it's been a remarkable experience and we, we can't take credit for most of it. We, we, just were, we just convened. Was there any resistance to this at all within the state, like on this, these environmental ministers or no? Mm-hmm. Okay. You see this in other places, too. I mean, I I did a bunch of interviews with um, folks from faith communities in Cincinnati Mm -hmm. where they had engaged basically all the large churches in the area to be a part of their um, stimulus-funded program. And they would choose one church and they would, uh, or synagogue, there's a lot of different faiths that were involved, um, and they would do an upgrade on that facility, uh, make it much more efficient, and they would use that as a model um, to educate the congregation. And then they'd also bring all the other congregations of that faith to that one place to learn about how they did it. Um, and in a number of places, they're actually using... Um, their own funds. They have loan pools in many cases to fund various types of repairs and improvements, and they're used, starting to use some of their own funds to do these upgrades in many of their buildings across, in this case, Cincinnati and that, and that whole region. So this is not essentially a Christian message. It resonates across other faiths. So there are other, other we, we, you see other examples of this um, in these various communities? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, utilities. We're talking about wind not being popular. Utilities are sometimes vilified, and in your case, they almost seem heroic. Mm-hmm. So how did that happen? Um, that was by design, in a sense. I mean, we, we, we really felt like if we could work with every different kind of utility and show how great they could be in partnering with consumers to reduce energy use that we knew that they would be heroes to their customers and certainly they would be to us and we thought that if we could just applaud loud and long enough that um, that that would become the new normal and indeed I I think that has proven to be the case and so we did have terrific partnership with every different kind of utility the municipal utilities um, actually created a whole new efficiency program so that their communities could compete uh, and so they were, they, were, they were great partners, and they are, um, in Kansas, really our best hope of keeping these programs alive over time. This is where it gets institutionalized, and this is where the new normal lives. And so if, if you t- to the extent that utilities can be perceived as energy service providers, and part of that service is helping you use less, mm-hmm. then we all succeed. So, so yes, they were, they were 
they were heroes. Really important, because there's a lot of places in the country where there's been antagonistic relationships that have been developed over time. And because utilities are closely involved with their customers, they have access to all that data that you actually need to know to see if you want to see change over time. It's so important to start there. Um, and I know, you know, for example, these really small utilities in Kansas, like Midwest Energy, they actually have some of the more innovative programs Thank in the you. country. I'm constantly talking about these some small utilities who have just decided that it makes sense to offer basically 0% financing on bill so that customers over time are paying off improvements to their home. And in one case in Kansas, they actually transfer to the next customer if that person leaves. They do a really good job at making sure that they're going to save money. They have their own staff that goes in there and does a really good quality assurance. But it's been really hard to get other utilities to be that innovative. But in a small place, they can actually test a concept out, and then we can spread it around and show that it actually works mm-hmm. in some of the large utilities that sometimes are more risk-averse. Uh, another question that came in from social media uh, is about whether the CEP benefited from the recession, the fact that people would want to save money, and so that that was a receptive message that you might not have should the economy turn around. Yes. I mean, to, to some extent, we got, we got a little lucky with timing, because just as we were beginning to launch the Take Charge Challenge, the first round was when we were having an economic collapse. And so it was certainly a time when that, that money-saving message was resonant. What was exciting to us, though, as Miriam noted, is that it became clear as we proceeded that there were so many other reasons mm-hmm. that these communities were participating and that they wanted to win, but that, that, that using less makes sense. Using less makes sense. And as we, con- as we continued to talk about that, it, it, that message grew actually in resonance rather than the other way around. So it was, it was exciting. Okay, so let's crystallize this. So what, for both question for both of you, what is the key to behavior change in this area? What do you think? The key. <laughs> Maybe there's more. <laughs> well, there's not one thing. <laughs> that, that's, that's what we learn over and over again. Okay. I, I would say that we have to find some way of getting people's attention. And that takes being very creative and actually understanding how people's minds work. Ultimately, um, I don't think it can just be about it being fun or easy. It needs to be just normal. It needs to be something that everyone does because we don't have, you know, we're not Coca-Cola with millions and millions of dollars worth of marketing budget. We have to be able to get people engaged, get people interested in places like Kansas where they might find it um, off-putting at first if it's associated with climate change, get people actually to do something and to start to see themselves as someone who does things like this, conserving energy. And then it needs to start to be just part of what we do as homeowners, as business owners, as, you know, if people who are taking care of the infrastructure in this country it needs to start to be normal and actually agree. not exciting and se- sexy ultimately. Not but, exciting but, and sexy? No, but really? ultimately. No, surely not. But in the beginning, you have to catch people's attention. Okay. Right. In the beginning, there has, to be, there has to be an event. There has to be a moment of decision um, where you get to the new normal. And for that to happen, there has to be a disruption mm-hmm. in, in what you've been doing. And so for us, certainly, I think success has been based on making it local, you know, really knowing the audience, as Miriam said, there are different neighborhoods that respond differently, much less different towns, different states, and so on. So making it local, making it relatively easy, mm-hmm. and making it fun absolutely matters at first. If you want to have that disruptive moment where you reset your defaults, yep. that has to happen. But you're exactly right. And the recycling is the perfect example, right? It was, it was largely kids in schools that came home and said, we have to recycle, and the blue bin out there that makes you embarrassed if you don't have the blue been yep. to the point that now recycling is a norm and it's embarrassing if you don't do it. Um, 
Exactly. This is this is exactly what we're what we're going for. So I would agree. Long term, it needs to be the norm, but how you get there um, has to be appealing, it, yep. rather than off-putting. And how do we make sure that it endures? What can we do? Well, it has to become people's habits need to change. So there's two types of efficiency that we often think about. One is you know just habits every day, turning off the lights, thinking about actions throughout the day. The other one is you want them to invest in improving the infrastructure. So they, they need to have better insulation, better sealed homes so they don't lose the heat, heated air, the cooled air. That's a one-time decision, or at least it's not a very often uh, made decision. It's, it's something that you know maybe every time they replace their furnace, they need to think about a more efficient furnace. But um, there's those little habits, and then there's those big investment decisions. And we have to think about both of them. And you can use those little habits, things like just replacing a light bulb to just start getting people to think of themselves in a certain way that then may open them up to being, you know, eventually down the road saying, yeah, insulation makes sense. Right. I'm going to invest $2,000 in insulation. And I think it's illustrative that for the Take Charge Challenge, almost every leadership team decided that the first quarter would be the light bulb challenge mm-hmm. because that's the thing that's tangible. It's relatively easy to do. There are all kind, The Boy Scouts can go and hand them out in neighborhoods. There are all kinds of ways to really make that sing. And having then taken that action, it's easier to talk about other actions. The second round in terms of things that we learned from the first round, too, and, and durable change is and because we were working with era dollars, the second round really focused on whole home retrofits so that we were working on insulation and sealing ducts and sealing windows and furnaces that were much more efficient and that sort of thing. And and two of our utilities started providing on-bill financing, which was huge. So we learned a lot about what actually makes change happen. And as people change their homes where they live, it also does raise that consciousness, particularly if they have a feedback on what they're using when. There really does seem to be some durable change um, in, in behaviors in that, in that regard, too. Okay, so to drive the point home, and before we open up to audience questions, uh, the role of messages and messengers and credible facts. Let's hit those three so that we make sure that everybody can retain that part. For, for us, clearly, the, the, the messenger needed to be the person who had credibility with the people with whom we were trying to work. That wasn't always us, and sometimes it was. Uh, but, but we recruited leadership teams, again, who had, you know, it was always the mayor and the, and the city manager and the superintendent of schools and then any number of other influential uh, leaders within the community. So messengers matter enormously. And, and the obvious follow-on to that is the message itself needs to be resonant. It needs to be able to be heard. And critical to that is to avoid the knee-jerk reaction. And so what we didn't, you know, what we learned from the IPCC report was don't ever lead with climate. Um, if people don't agree with us on that, that's okay. We need to be able to find what we can agree on. And we, and we were able to do that. So messages and messengers were um, absolutely key. Okay, well, let's raise the lights and let's start uh, getting questions from the audience. We have mics here and here. Don't be shy. Break the audience with no questions. This is not possible. Oh, here we go. Have you experienced any pushback from the utilities once consumption went down in the sense of rates going up, as we've experienced here in Northern California? We have not we have not experienced pushback from utilities in part because we've we've only just begun. And so while reductions were fairly deep in individual communities across an entire service area, they still were 
very manageable. And so, in fact, at the moment, when there are real constraints in terms of adding new generation, utilities, I think, have not been disappointed to have demand dampened um, somewhat. I would say, I mean, I've actually been thrilled that in throughout the economic downturn, when returns for utilities were down in any case, the fact that they continued to robustly support the challenge, really take part and participate, was very rewarding. And I think it goes again to that notion that actually, if customers are demanding it, and utilities can see themselves as champions in this, that that, that, that matters and they want to hang on to that role. Hi. Hi. Um, congratulations on all your successes. Thank uh, you. Here in California, we have a disconnect between um, when we have a demand for energy and when the wind blows. Yeah. And I want to know if you have a similar disconnect in Kansas, and if you do, is that driving you toward um, moving from energy efficiency to more demand response? Excellent question. And the answer is to a large extent, yes and yes. Um, so the, the profile of the Kansas wind is that it does tend to blow disproportionately at night. Um, that's, that's, that's what we have always said. However, numerous wind developers have recently told me that I should never say that anymore because, in fact, in many, in many of our wind farm sites, we are seeing much more diverse uh, wind profile and, and even a lot of on-peak delivery. So, but in general, um, we are often off-peak. And so, yes, there is a real focus on how we move to demand response in addition to the energy efficiency broadly conceived. So, Marion, final thoughts for the audience. Uh, what would be the takeaway message you want to leave with these folks who are still seated here? Um, gosh... In terms of, of what really works, um, I think that we might start with things like it's going to save you money, but if we only use that, we're never going to get as far as we need to go okay. in terms of the pro problems that we have in terms of climate, environment, et cetera. Um, but the larger values that we attach that to can be multiple things. Um, and I, I really wonder about pushing climate change in a place that... Um, there's so much polarization around that specific topic that you can waste a lot of time and energy and money um, just defending your position as opposed to moving people towards something positive that they could probably connect to even without climate change at a larger level. Okay. And Nancy, for any aspiring Nancy Jacksons who might be in the audience or watching this ultimately on YouTube, any words of advice? Don't be afraid. <laughs> Don't be afraid and never take no for an answer. Um, it's it's possible to do incredible, amazing things with a tiny group of inspired people. And that's the other thing, work with brilliant people. I second that. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, audience. Thank you for uh, attending Science Theater. And see you again on November 7th. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.